ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. G'day, Angus Furley here. Coming up on today's show, you'll hear from ABARES about its latest crop report, including a predicted big fall in ag production this year, coming off last year's record high. You'll also hear the outcome of court proceedings against a cattle feedlotter whose employee died from electrocution. And you'll hear from State Water Minister Harriet Ching about what the federal government's fixation on water buybacks means for Victorians. Get in touch with the program, 0467 842 722. Right now, though, let's go to Rural News, and today that is with Annie Brown. Hello, Angus Fairley. Making Rural News today... New laws have passed in South Australia that strengthen regulation of the veterinary profession and help ease the ongoing vet shortage happening right across Australia. The new Veterinary Services Bill 2023 aims to make it easier for vets to return to practice after time away and ensure veterinary premises are fit for purpose. Dr Catherine Harper owns a veterinary practice in the Barossa and explains the changes. So I think the bill was nearly 100 years old and so it definitely needed updating but some of the major changes are some really significant improvements to improving the registration of new vets in South Australia um, and as well as making it easier for vets who've had career breaks for kids or for other reasons to get registered and come back to work. So we're sort of entering the seventh year of a national veterinary shortage and it's been even longer and probably more severe in our regional areas so we're really hoping that these I guess the streamlining of the registration process and update of regulations and we have a completely new veterinary surgeon board in South Australia who's kind of worked through some of the challenges that have been there before and then this bill kind of fits in behind and really reinforces that change so it's really exciting. Farmers could soon be using electricity instead of chemicals to kill weeds and that could be particularly useful on herbicide resistant weeds. Western Australia's Department of Primary Industries has been testing a machine called X-Power that was developed in Germany. Research scientist Miranda Slavin says in the last year they've found electricity effectively deals with a range of weeds, including annual ryegrass and wild radish. It works by converting your tractor's PTO power into a high-voltage current in the rear-mounted power unit. This is then transferred to your chosen applicator unit, which contains electrodes. And as the tractor travels forward, these electrodes wipe over the weeds and transfer the current, which actually bursts the weed cells and kills it or suppresses its growth. Contact is the essential part of this. So you're just making sure you actually have the right application height to get all of the weeds that are your problem ones. We found that it's going to be useful in a number of industries. But we've also found, interestingly, this year that growers facing herbicide resistance weeds could also effectively use electric weed control as an alternative to chemicals. Garlic harvest is in full swing midway through the season in the southeast of Australia. Nick Diamantopoulos is the chief executive of Australian Garlic Producers and he grows garlic himself in Mount Gambia. He says the season has been more favourable than last year 
and apparently we are all loving garlic with a strong demand year-round. The entire production of fresh garlic ends up in Australian supermarkets. So we supply Coles, Woolworths, Aldi supermarkets nationally. Before COVID, it was sort of the demand increased during the colder weather. But we found since COVID, it's become very consistent. Like people are just using it a lot at home. I think that a lot of people were not going out to restaurants so much. So they discovered how wonderful fresh Australian garlic is when they prepare meals at home. I just reckon people must be cooking a lot more at home. That could also be a sign of the economic times as well. But no, look, it's very consistent and demand is increasing year on year. The Sunrise Group has won the Agribusiness Food and Beverages Award, which was announced at the Australian Export Awards at Parliament House. Worth over $1.6 billion now, the company started over 70 years ago when a group of Riverina rice growers pulled their resources to build a single rice mill in the 1950s. It now sells more than 1,500 products under 35 major brands into over 50 countries and is currently employing 650 people in what is a bumpy year for rice growing. Stone fruit has been enjoying some attention in the supermarkets this year due to a smaller than average mango crop. It was a strange year for mango growers in the top end. Picking started a few weeks earlier than normal and smaller volumes meant in some cases prices were double the average. Perth market agent Adrian Farsick says it was an early finish to the season and the final mangoes were cleaned up last week. And more people are picking up nectarines and peaches. With mango sort of price being being higher, not actually being available everywhere, like not everyone could get mangoes at some points and things like that. And, you know, sometimes there wasn't any in the shop and right now, there's, you know, there wouldn't be very much. It's actually helped sort of stone fruit sort of take off a bit better. Like stone fruit had a really strong start to the season. So despite the fact that they've started early, fruit's really good. And, um, yeah, people, if they can't get a mango or if, if they feel like a mango is too expensive, they getting some stone fruit and they're not competing against each other I suppose. Peaches on your pavlova for Christmas this year it sounds like and that is what's making rural news. Sounds good thanks Annie. Annie Brown there with rural news. Marty's on the text line getting in early in advance of our daily chat with the Bureau. Marty says what's the chance of the Coral Sea cyclone coming in close enough to load up the weather systems that are currently over the mainland with additional moisture? Not sure, Marty. We'll certainly put that to the Bureau at about 12.35. Any questions you've got, you can send them in, 0467 842 722. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Ag production is expected to fall back a massive $16 billion this financial year, with dry conditions and poor livestock prices taking their toll. But production is still tipped to come in at around $78 billion. That would be the third highest figure on record. I had a chat earlier with David Galliano, Acting Executive Director of ABARES. So really the, the story is uh, drier conditions and, and lower commodity prices mean that the value of agriculture will fall to about $78 billion in 2023-24, And that's compared to a revised figure of about $94 billion the year before. So about $16 billion down. Okay, so a substantial fall, but but coming off a record high? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, the $78 billion is still uh, up there in terms of uh, records, but it is down from the, the recent highs. And, and look, it's it's across the board in terms of crops and livestock. It's not just a story about uh, one or the other. So uh, about a $12 billion reduction in the value of crops and about a $4 billion uh, reduction in the value of livestock. And, of course, there is this push from, from ag <clears throat> lobby groups, government, et cetera, to, to achieve $100 billion in ag production. But I suppose, as you said, with climate challenges this season, it highlights that uh, farmers can do the best they possibly can. But at the end of the day, climate is a, a big factor in terms of, of ag, the value of ag production. Yeah, look, that's exactly right. I mean, it's, it's agriculture is one of those sectors that goes up and down with, uh, with the weather. So really that 100 billion target uh, is more of a longer term trend type objective. Uh, it, it's going to be nearly impossible to make $100 billion every year because uh, we are at the mercy of the seasonal conditions in every year. Now, winter crop production obviously uh, plays a big part in overall production. And that, I think, across the board fell by about a third, but quite a variance in terms of geography? Yeah, so as normal, there's a bit of a, a mixed story there. So pl- places like Victoria fared uh, much better than others. There's some very timely rain down that part of the world uh, through sort of October. Uh, but in the northern, more northern parts, uh, dry conditions have had a bigger impact and similar over in the west. Um, we're expecting across um, both winter crop and summer crop for 23, 24 total value down by about 20% to about $46 billion. Uh, and that's you know, largely driven by reductions in, in wheat and canola. They're about $10 billion, those two together. And uh, Victoria, really really the bright spot in terms of production? Yeah, so in terms of production for Victoria, we, we are projecting uh, for winter crop production, that is, uh, down to about 9.6, oh, I'm sorry, 9,600 uh, kilotons. Uh, and that's down from about 11,000 last year but to put it in context that 9,600 kilotons is still about 30% above the 10-year average so yes it has come down but uh, in Victoria still looking pretty good overall although the recent rain I probably should say has probably delayed harvest a little bit and there's likely to be some um, you know quality downgrades uh, in some places that might put a dent in that. And as you mentioned, in terms of winter crop, pretty tough in, in parts of Queensland, WA, SA and, and northern New South Wales? Yeah, that's exactly right. It uh, falls really across the board. If, if I go to some other states, uh, you know, a lot of the, the reductions, so winter, winter crop production in Western Australia, uh, depending on what we're talking about, whether it's wheat or barley or canola, we're, we're projecting reductions of, uh, you know, sort of 30, 40, 50 percent. Uh, and a similar story in, in some other places. South Australia is down in the order of about 30%. New South Wales, we're down in the order of about 30% for winter crops. So, yeah, certainly we're seeing those seasonal conditions bite more in uh, some of those other states. And summer crop, particularly uh, cotton and rice, what are we – obviously those crops are just, just in the ground at the moment, but what mm, are you forecasting yeah. there? So rice production – we're actually expecting that to go up quite a bit. Now, that's driven by the very good water availability in the Murray-Darling Basin. That's where most of the, the rice is grown. So we're actually expecting that to come up about uh, 30 or 35%. And that increase is also due to last year being actually too wet um, in some places for, for rice. Uh, and we're expecting cotton to come back a little bit. And that's largely reflective of just a reduction in that dry land uh, cotton uh, going in now. 
typically there's irrigated cotton is grown and also some dryland cotton and with a very good seasonal conditions the last few years there's quite a lot of dryland cotton and we're expecting that to come back a little bit uh, for 23-24. And I suppose we've been talking about production but this this is a report on on value and, and the other part of, of that is that uh, the, the price that farmers are receiving and uh, for most commodities, and as you mentioned earlier, particularly livestock, that's where there has been a big hit. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, there are there are some reductions for crops, but nowhere near uh, what we're seeing for livestock. So your world supply of uh, crops probably rebounding a little bit. So we're seeing some prices soften a little bit, but really the, the big falls have been in uh, livestock as the, you know, the dry conditions of have taken effect and, and farmers are destocking, um, so that increased supply and less restock of demand has put a put a bit of a dent in livestock prices. Although again, the, the rain the last couple of weeks has in the east anyway has certainly um, seen pasture growth prospects improve. So we have, have actually seen those livestock prices rebound quite a bit in the last few weeks, which is uh, good news for, for farmers. And as we touched on earlier, and I'm sure as you would see in doing these reports, it. It's it's pretty extraordinary, isn't it, how quickly uh, production and, and farmers' fortunes and uh, commodity prices can turn around when we do get a bit of rain. Yeah, that's right. I mean, expectations are a big part of this as well. Uh, and, you know, farmers making decisions out there on the ground on the day with what they're expecting to happen. Uh, and there were quite a lot of farmers with the, the forecasts of the El Nino. Farmers uh, made some early action to, to destock. Uh, but then, you know, we've seen the rain and that's exactly right. The farmers' uh, expectations and confidence has come back. So we see that supply and demand playing out fairly quickly. That was David Galliano, Acting Executive Director of ABARES. 19 past 12, this is the Country Hour with Fangus Furley. Victoria faces the loss of hundreds of millions of dollars in federal funding for environmental projects after refusing to sign on to an extension of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. With the Victorian and federal governments now in a stalemate over the plan, the future of nine floodplain restoration projects is uncertain. Elsie Kennedy has the story. On Friday, Victorian Water Minister Harriet Ching directed a group of journalists to a section of floodplain in the Hadakalkine National Park, full of dead black box trees. It was a dramatic location for a press conference where she called out the federal government under Water Minister Tanya Plibersek for denying funding to nine floodplain restoration projects unless Victoria signs on to the extended Murray-Darling Basin Plan, which became law last week. The Victorian government wants to pump water to nine sites, known as the Sustainable Diversion Limit Adjustment Mechanism, or SIDLAM projects. The water will be pumped via a series of pipes and regulators. Victoria says doing so will restore the sites ecologically, as well as saving 72.5 gigalitres of water, the equivalent of 29,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools, which would otherwise have been needed to push water out across the floodplains in a natural flooding event. Minister Shing says her government cannot sign on to the extended basin plan because it opposes buybacks of irrigation water, which have been made possible under the extension. She says if the federal government doesn't stump up the money, sites like Hatter North will be in serious trouble. This is an area that, as you'll see, is pretty arid. And unless it gets water to where it's needed, 
in a gentle and consistent way, the ecosystem doesn't develop the resilience that it needs and won't have that adaptation to climate change. Floodplain management projects are of crucial importance to delivering water to areas just like this. And we know that using pumps and regulators can get water onto floodplains to protect and to help around 14,000 hectares of really precious environmental land. We also want to make sure that we are signing up to projects that will deliver long-term benefit for this part of the world without harming communities. We can return benefit of around 70 gigalitres of water where these projects are delivered and I would call upon the Commonwealth Government to continue to work with Victoria to make sure that these projects are delivered. At this stage, this is one of nine floodplain restoration projects that Victoria has to complete under the Basin Plan. Can they be completed by the extended deadline at the end of 2027? I've been calling for an extension of time for around 18 months now. Uh, We've had an interruption to that while the Commonwealth has been considering its position. But as I've always said, we are ready and willing and able to continue with the project work to make sure that water can get onto these floodplains. Uh, We are able to deliver around 95% of our commitments under the Basin Plan if given an extension. Um, I would really like to get this work up and away Obviously, the longer we take to get these projects back on track, um, the longer time um, we will we'll need. Would you be willing to sign on to the Basin Plan in order to get the funding you need for these projects? Well, the Commonwealth has said that it doesn't need Victoria's permission to proceed down the path of buybacks. And our position on buybacks has been absolutely clear for years now. We oppose them on the basis that they harm communities. Uh, the Commonwealth says it doesn't need permission Uh, to undertake buybacks and therefore it's somewhat curious that they're then saying unless we sign up they're not going to fund projects that deliver for Victorian environments which is the whole point of the plan in the first place. That was Victorian Water Minister Harriet Ching speaking with Elsie Kennedy and a spokesperson for Federal Environment and Water Minister Tanya Plibersek said the Albanese government has offered a funding arrangement for these projects that the Victorian government has refused. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Wine grape growers are facing a nervous wait ahead of the announcement of this season's prices on December 13. Elsie Kennedy spoke to Swan Hill Grower and Chairman of Murray Valley Wine Growers, Chris Dent. What we do know is that uh, the demand, particularly for red varieties, is is declining, uh, has been for a few years, and uh, there's been quite a bit of activity in the off-season with wineries letting growers know that their fruit's not wanted or they don't want as much as they normally take, which indicates uh, the demand has come right off for those red varieties. So we're expecting that prices will be less than they were last year, just given that sort of information and and uh, the pure state of um, the industry and the oversupply. And so when you say less than last year, what were prices at last year? Our mainstream red varieties were the average around these regions were sort of below $300 per tonne. It would obviously vary quite a lot from year to year, but in terms of what you're looking at at the moment, do you know what the cost would be to to cover your basic costs? Well, it's all dependent on the yields really, like it's a cost per hectare that is the important part. But the general feeling for red varieties, for example, is that, um, yeah, anything less than sort of $300, $350 would be below cost in a normal year. Mm. 
in the scenario where the return is lower than the cost of production, what kind of options do, do growers have in that situation? Yeah, not a lot. Not a lot. We've just got to be careful with our dollars and cents. Murray Valley Wine Growers Chief Executive Paul Dorico says red grape growers have been struggling now for a couple of years and growers with a mix of white and red grapes will be in a better position to get through the next few years than growers who grow just reds. We're just going to bear in mind that at least half the grapes that are produced in the Murray Valley are white wine grapes. So with the, the white pricing, growers would be hopeful that they would be at the very least equal to what they were for vintage 2023 and they might be hopeful that there might be a slight increase. Uh, however, against that year, reds are just going to be a real challenge. Some reds, again this year, will not be harvested. Also, in, not this year, but in, in 2024, some of them will not be harvested because there's no home for their wineries uh, you know, having great difficulty clearing their, clearing their tanks. Mm. And there's been a, quite a few factors playing into that, obviously. Can you talk me through what some of those factors are? The key one, uh, of, of course, was the China market, which is basically closed to Australia with uh, the significant tariffs that were applied to Australian wine. The Australian industry hasn't been able to readily find alternative markets. And there has been talk this year of that situation with China potentially shifting. Is that bringing in some optimism to the market? Oh, look, I hope not, to be honest. With the likelihood, or the, or the hope, we should say, that um, the Chinese market may open up again, there is no certainty that will happen. The likelihood that the Chinese market opening up again, it, it just won't have a significant impact immediately. And you've got to look at the fact that China is only importing half the amount of wine that it was only five years ago. That was Murray Valley Wine Growers Chief Executive Paul DeRico speaking with Elsie Kennedy. 26 past 12, this is the Country Hour. Let's go from wine to hemp now because the hemp industry needs new legislation to get the multi-billion dollar market off the ground, according to a Victorian parliamentary inquiry. The inquiry examined issues, barriers and opportunities facing Victoria's industry, tabling a report with nine recommendations. Legalised Cannabis MP Rachel Payne, who initiated the inquiry, says the committee found legislative barriers were holding the industry back. Firstly, hemp is still considered under the Drugs, Poisons and Controlled Substances Act 1981. It's not treated as a crop, which is exactly what it is. And so the committee found overwhelmingly that there was evidence there that this is a misplacement when it comes to considering hemp as a drug. And it also puts um, not only the community off, but those that might be wanting to get involved in the hemp industry. We heard from a lot of farmers, especially, that like to consider hemp in the opportunities of, say, a rotational crop. But the process of gaining that licence to grow hemp, having to apply through a Drugs, Poisons and Controlled Substances Act, was just a major barrier. So the key recommendation, what the um, inquiry found, was that there needs to be a fit-for-purpose Industrial Hemp Act and for hemp to be removed out of that classification as a drug. How would that be taken forward? Is there a next step before legislative change can happen? 
the report found nine recommendations and, and some of those recommendations would be around legislative reform, as I've just discussed. Some would be around some practical solutions that don't cost a lot of money to really kickstart the hemp industry. And then some of the recommendations were around bigger picture, which is sort of looking at the future of hemp, um, particularly with the Victorian government advocating on behalf of the hemp industry with the federal government. So some of those legislative changes um, would have to occur through Victorian Parliament. Um, this report actually came out of a motion I brought to Parliament to investigate hemp as a, as a viable industry. And there's so much opportunity here. Um, once you remove those burdens around over-regulation, um, lack of support for industry, as well as just removing that stigma by no longer seeing it as affiliated with, say, cannabis or, or marijuana, but hemp as a standalone, very viable industrial product um, that is a really viable crop. Are you considering introducing a private member's bill? I dare say that's in my future direction for the I, I would like to do that within the next 12 months and I think what we found with the inquiry was you had participants in that in, in that committee from all sides of politics but we all agreed that the current system was not working and that hemp really suffered from stigma. Um, and there was so much opportunity there um, for so many different facets of industry. I mean, hemp is an amazing plant and it has so many applications. We looked at the timber industry and how and one of the recommendations actually talks about investigating the opportunity to repurpose a lot of that existing infrastructure for industrial hemp processing. Um, for example, the timber yards um, and the paper production. Um, there could be a viable alternative there that would be an easy swap um, and something that wouldn't cost a lot of money but is a really practical solution. That was legalised cannabis MP Rachel Payne speaking with Fiona Broom. Just ticked over 12.30, let's head off to news headlines now with Jean Bell. Good afternoon, Angus. The Victorian government has announced the locations of 30 new childcare centres due to open around the state before 2028. Ten government-owned and operated centres will open at schools across the state in 2026, including in Clunes and Portland. Another 20 centres will open in 2027 and 2028 in locations including Bendigo South, Casterton, Hamilton and Warrnambool. The state government expects the new centres will add thousands of extra spaces for children across the state in years to come. A North East Victorian council has been suspended following months of internal upheaval. An interim administrator has been appointed at Strathbogie Shire Council, with the suspension effective from tomorrow until the next council elections in October next year. It comes after two municipal monitors were appointed to the Shire in as many years in response to misconduct and governance concerns. Minister for Local Government Melissa Horne says in light of community and councillor feedback, it's clear that a circuit breaker is needed. Wodonga police are investigating a crash involving a cyclist, a toddler and a bus yesterday. Emergency services were called to the intersection of Broccoli and Melrose Drive just after 9 o'clock in the morning. Police say a female cyclist riding with a two-year-old child collided with a bus at the roundabout. The child was flown to a Melbourne hospital with life-threatening injuries, while the child has since been released from hospital without injury. Anglin Shire Council is set to have a full council table after a drawn-out vote countback process to fill two vacancies failed three times. Former Deputy Mayor Jaden Smith and former Councillor Chrissy Hawker both quit abruptly in October. 
Robin MacDonald has accepted the chance to fill one of the roles after initially declining to take the job, while former councillor Alastair MacDonald has taken the other vacancy. The two new councillors are set to be sworn in today. For more news and stories, search for your local ABC station online. Thanks, Jean. Jean Bell there with news headlines. Let's go to the Bureau now. Senior forecaster Stephanie Miles is on the line. Afternoon, Stephanie. Hi, Angus. How are you going? Yeah, very well, thank you. Good to talk. It's been a while. It has. Uh, Stephanie, look, we'll ask, of course, about this rain that's on the way later in the week. But before we get there, probably better tell me what's happening today. (laughs) Yeah, no worries. So I guess over the state... If you have a look at any of the satellite imagery or even from the ground, you can see that most of our southwestern parts and our eastern parts of the state are quite clear at the moment. There's a little bit of higher clouds streaming in over most of the northern parts. So we do actually have a bit of a a dry, kind of weakish trough that's making its way over the whole of the state today. So a little bit of gusty in the northeast and some northwesterly winds, but we do have some southwesterlies coming into the state already. Uh, And then what that does for our temperatures in mostly in the northern parts, we're getting temperatures up to about... You know, high 30s even for Mildura for 39, but those ones in the southwest only reaching uh, anywhere in the low 20s, 22 for Warrnambool as well in those southwesterly. So as for today, it's a little bit more settled. There might be a couple of um, really high cloud, sorry, house showers reaching those western parts, but, you know, quite dry for the rest of the day. Uh, and those dry conditions are going to continue into tomorrow as well on Wednesday too. We have mainly just southerlies across the uh, state tomorrow on Wednesday and then from Thursday onwards is uh, like we, you mentioned, Angus, is kind of when we're getting some showers starting over the state. So from Thursday onwards there'll be a couple of showers building in the northern parts of the state but it's really from Friday onwards that we start to see a little bit more increase in that shower activity. We have that trough kind of starting to extend from the northwest to the southwest, sorry, southeast of the state on Friday. Uh, And then we have showers kind of in both sides of the trough and then overnight on Friday they'll really start to increase and on Saturday as well as we have kind of like a bit of a cold front moving over Tasmania and it kind of reaches into our state and moves that trough eastward. So those showers that you're talking about, they're coming mostly on Friday, overnight Friday and into Saturday, Angus. And of course, I better ask what what totals because looking at the forecast right now, it seems to be one of those rain fronts that... There's a fair bit of uncertainty about when you have the likes of, if I click on Horsham, for example, Horsham Saturday forecast possible rain 0 to 15 mil. Uh, So difficulty in forecasting how much rain might fall? Yeah, look, it's really quite interesting. Most of the time when we get showers over the state, they're usually driven by some kind of surface front that's coming through. But at the moment, what we're kind of tapping into is more of like these northwesterlies that are persisting in the upper atmosphere of the state. It means that those showers are kind of being driven by any of the northwesterly um, moisture that's coming down from the centre of the uh, continent and over us. So it's not really moving all that quickly. And by that, it means that we've got a little bit more uncertainty of you know, how much of that's really going to reach the ground and where about it's going to originate. For those higher totals, uh, on Saturday in particular, our models kind of really started to become quite consistent and there's this huge rain band that kind of extends from the top of the Wimmera. You kind of go straight down to Bansdale and draw that you know diagonal line in that northwest to southeasterly aspect. But those are the areas that are going to be uh, getting the highest amount of rainfall on Saturday. But we are expecting you know most of the state, except for those northern parts, to receive some kind of rainfall. So anywhere between you know five to twenty millimeters with those higher places. Sorry, those areas like southwest Gippsland and then up in the Wimmera and uh, like that diagonal line kind of getting anywhere above 20, 20 to 30 millimetres. So, yeah, look, there is a little bit of uncertainty, but it does kind of look like that is the main areas where that rainfall will fall, Angus. 
Okay, and, and Stephanie, a couple of questions on the text line. Uh, Peter had one yesterday. We just didn't get to it yesterday with Joanna, but Peter asked, what time might central Gippsland around that sale, Yarram sort of area, start to receive the rain? Because Peter's considering doing some harvesting this week uh, and, yeah, just wondering what, what he's got to work with in terms of when the rain might arrive. Well, it seems as though for that area of the world that perhaps any time on Saturday there could be a couple of showers, but I would imagine that it would get a little bit heavier in the afternoon at this stage, it looks like, for that central part of Gippsland. Okay, so not starting to rain until Saturday? A couple of light showers on the Friday, but the main of it should come through on Saturday afternoon at the moment, or what it looks like at the moment anyway. Okay, a few days up your sleeve there, Peter. Uh, Another question was from Marty who says... What's the chance of that coral sea cyclone coming in close enough to load up our weather systems over the mainland with additional moisture? Great question. <laughs> uh, sophisticated one as well. Look, those uh, tropical cyclones, you know, they're really good at bringing all the moisture that we need from the equator down to the south. So there's definitely uh, an influence from that moisture up there getting towards the parts of the whole country but yeah look as it moves over land is more likely when we're going to get that moisture kind of coming and feeding into any of our weather systems Uh, but at the moment it doesn't really look like it's moving into um, over land Uh, like I said we're looking at Victoria at the moment so I don't have a very close look at Queensland but I think it's around seven plus days or so that it's kind of reaching anywhere near close landfall so anywhere from uh, Wednesday onwards next week I'd be more interested to see what's happening then Angus. Okay, sure. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just just finally, Stephanie, to reiterate, within Victoria, uh, what what regions are likely to receive the most rain? Yeah, no worries. So on Friday, expect anywhere between one to four millimetres in the northern plains. Over uh, southern and on the ranges, anywhere between the four to ten. This is for Friday. A little bit higher in those uh, southwest Otways and Bass Coast, anywhere between ten to fifteen millimetres on the Friday. Saturday. Day, Saturday seems to be the day that we'll get those highest rainfalls. So anywhere between the Wimmera and then draw a diagonal line down to about Bansdale, expect anywhere between 5 to 20 millimetres with places over southwest Gippsland in the very northwest, perhaps getting anywhere between the 20 to 30 mils on the Saturday, Angus. Okay, we'll keep discussing it as the week progresses and that system evolves. And just quickly, our very flattering text on the text line says, today's Bureau forecaster is so good, articulate, fluent, Full information delivered efficiently. How's that for a pat on the back? Very sweet. Thank you very much for that text in. We might leave it there on that note. Thanks, Stephanie. Enjoy your afternoon. Thanks, Angus. You too. Stephanie Miles there, Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. A cattle feedlotter has pleaded guilty and been fined over the fatal electrocution of an employee at its Jarang-Jarang site near between Dimboola and Nil. Western Australian company Harmony Operations was fined $140,000 in the Sunshine Magistrates Court yesterday after pleading guilty to two charges under the Occupational Health and Safety Act. Reporter Gillian Aria sat in on the case and she joins me now. Gillian, to begin, just take us back to what happened on that day in November 2020. Right. So back in November 2020, we had a 29-year-old farmhand worker at this cattle feedlot that was owned by Harmony Operations. Um, His name was Adrian Wilde, and he was tasked with moving hay bales from one location to another. After he had finished uh, 
moving the hay bales, he drove the teller handler towards a stack of hay bales, which were perpendicular to the power lines, and the boom and the bell fitting equipment on the back were raised. And so as he drove, the attachment made contact with the power lines, um, and there were sparks and a flash seen from the rear tyre of the teller handler. Um, the court heard yesterday that another worker was yelling at Mr. Wilde, telling him, you know, don't get out of the cabin. But for whatever reason, um, Mr. Wilde did. Perhaps he didn't see him. And when he got out of the cabin, he was electrocuted and he died at the scene. So after that, WorkSafe investigated and then eventually brought charges against the, the operator of that feedlot? That's correct. So... WorkSafe investigated the incident and charged Harmony Operations Proprietary Limited with two counts under the Occupational Health and Safety Act. Um, they were for failing to provide a safe and working environment for employees and also failing to provide instruction to the employees to work in a safe manner. This would have included having a three-metre exclusion zone around the power lines to prevent employees from from getting near them but also the court heard that there was while employees were given instruction on how to operate the telehandler safely there was nothing in there that referred to how to work with power lines safely that could be in the vicinity even though there were clearly overhead power lines on the site absolutely and electrocution risk and power lines are a well-known risk on work sites okay so Harmony Operations pleaded guilty to those charges? They did. They pleaded guilty to both charges. Um, they were not convicted or they were there was no conviction recorded against them, but they were fined $140,000. And you sat in on the court hearing. What did the magistrate have to say about uh, Harmony Operations? So Magistrate Amina Bai said Harmony Operations had failed to set up an exclusion zone, that three-metre exclusion zone, around the power lines and also had failed to instruct the employees on how to work safely around them. She made it very clear repeatedly that she was not sentencing the company for causing Mr. Wilde's death, but rather for the risk that the employees were exposed to without the training and without the exclusion zone. And has WorkSafe had anything to say after the the outcome of the, the hearing? Yeah, so the, um, in a statement yesterday, the WorkSafe Executive Director of Health and Safety, Narelle Beers, said the fatality was an absolute tragedy that could have been avoided had control measures been available to guard it against that electrocution risk, which is well known in the industry. And they have um, quite understandably put out a warning to all you know, power line employers and contractors about being careful and observing and communicating the risk of trucks and mobile equipment around power lines. And Gillian as well, uh, this person who lost their lives, that they were they had children and as well uh, in court, in the hearing, I think the magistrate read out victim impact statements from the, the man's parents. Yes, yeah, so Mr. Wilde's parents um, appeared via video link and um, the magistrate, um, I mean, by reference some of what their victim impact statements had said previously, which was um, Chris Wilde, Adrian's, Mr. Wilde's father rather, um, mentioned how he struggled emotionally, physically and mentally since the incident and he struggles with motivation for everyday tasks. Um, the magistrate also referenced Mr. Wilde's mother's impact statement, who is a grandmother. Um, Mr. Wilde had two children and his mother was worried how they would cope um, with the loss of their father. Thanks, Gillian. Gillian Area there with the details of that very, very sad case. 
On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. Australia is one of 134 countries to have signed up to a declaration on sustainable agriculture, resilient food systems and climate action at the United Nations Climate Change Conference, known as COP28. The declaration says changes in climate are threatening the resilience of agriculture and food systems. National Farmers Federation President David Jahinke says the declaration is an opportunity for producers to take the lead on conversations around climate change. The declaration essentially says that agriculture does play a part in the broader discussion around climate change and must uh, include agriculture in any discussions. The key part, though, it shouldn't threaten food production. So what we want to do is be acknowledged for the good work that we do with um, our management of our systems, how is carbon cycles through our systems, the fact that we both emit and then also draw down on carbon, and that we have got a role to play in that broader discussion. What we don't want to see by being excluded is people telling us what agriculture should or shouldn't be doing and enforcing changes that will affect our ability to produce food into the future. In practical terms, do you see this declaration having any immediate impacts on agricultural operations in Australia? Well, for the person on the ground, no. This is about setting the policy framework, which is the hard yards of what governments make the decisions on, and then essentially that trickles down into legislation and then that would affect farmers. But what we're trying to do is cut a lot of nonsense off of the past we produce food and at the end of the day that's the building block of what a growing population requires and we can't be cut off at the knees by some idealism that will prevent us from doing our job. Are there any elements within this declaration that you can see having a sort of longer term impact on food or fisheries or forestries in Australia or is it more of a a general sort of declaration of intent? Well, it's very much a declaration of intent in the fact that it does set out that agriculture will be included and will be discussed as an industry, as a participant, not as a party that is not included that will have an effect indirectly or in many cases directly on us by legislation that will either prevent us from doing or using cultural activities or even uh, developing technologies that Um, won't be permissible purely because um, there's a different agenda to ours. So in many ways, it sets the framework for us to work towards. It lets us have a seat at the table. But once again, the clear statement that we want farmers out there to acknowledge is that this is about putting ourselves in a position where it doesn't threaten our food production systems. So the Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt said the declaration will deepen ties with Australia's trading partners, including those countries who have high demands for sustainability credentials for their food and fibre imports. Do you agree with that statement? One of the greatest challenges we've got in agriculture is to demonstrate our sustainability and what we consider as some world-leading practices. Unfortunately, agriculture is usually viewed through the lens of European production systems, which don't take into the account that we have old soils, that we don't have rainforests, that we don't have rivers that flow all year round, and that we do have this pulse of dry, wet, seasonality, uh, droughts and floods. 
and that we have adapted to those systems and we've created our own way of farming. It's describing those um, methodologies, demonstrating them through practices that we are working with um, through something that we're calling the sustainability framework so a farmer can actually go to their farm, do a calculation, demonstrate how they do their production system in a way that isn't overburden because like I'm a farmer, I don't want to sit in the office all day as well, but yet can prove that we are doing what we say we're doing. And so when an international um, consumer, when an international market buys our produce, we can stand by the fact that we are saying that we are world leaders in adopting technology, that we are using best practice to ensure that we're not damaging our biodiversity or our environment, and that that is the standard that we want to use, not somebody else's. That was National Farmers National Farmers Federation President David Jahinke, who will be heading to that COP conference in Dubai. He was speaking there with Fiona Broom. A couple of texts on the text line about our earlier story, very sad case of that uh, feedlot worker who was electrocuted when his tally handler came into contact with an overhead power line. Frank at Dean near Ballarat says, what about sagging power lines in the Dean area outside Ballarat where farmers are grossly exposed to serious injury or death because of those sagging transmission lines? Uh, Alberto Ma also says, any word on the power lines around Dean, Creswick? Pretty dangerous, he says. Uh, Thank you for your texts as well. Hamish says on that that, uh, climate change story we just had, had on, Hamish says, Australian greenhouse gas emissions are tiny on the world stage. Australian farmers can't change the world's weather at all. Droughts, fires, floods, it's not new. David has a sensible approach, says Hamish. A little bit more time on the country hour for your text, so get in touch, 0467 842 Just about to go 10 minutes to one. This is the country hour with Angus Verley. Let's go now to the story of Vanuatu and Ali Enoch, who is the toast of stall this week after winning gold at the Pacific Games in the Solomon Islands. The champion para-athlete who works at Fru Foods International under the Pacific Labor Mobility Scheme won gold in the shot put to also earn qualification for the Paris 2024 Paralympic Games. I spoke with her shortly after her winning throw. I'm so happy and I'm so excited because, like, this is my first uh, cold medal. And even uh, uh, coming here um, is like one of the one of my calls uh, for me to um, win a cold medal. And um, I'm so happy. Yeah, I'm so, so very happy. Uh, you know, the feeling was like uh, mixed up, like happy, emotional and everything. And I'm just super, super, yeah, happy and excited. And Ali, not only did you win gold at the Pacific Games, but you have also, I think, qualified for the Paralympic Games in Paris next year. Yeah, I'm so happy for that as well because, uh, like I've said, my aim to come down here is uh, uh, I just wanted I wanted to qualify and uh, yeah win some medals. But uh, I'm so happy that I win a gold uh, after this game. So now I'm looking forward to uh, Paris and uh, yeah getting ready for Paris. And I need to do more trainings. Tell me a little bit about your own story and and your your disability and how you came to be competing in events like these? 
Well, I, uh, I caught my disability when I was 20 years old. I caught my disability through a car accident. And um, it was that moment that um, I thought that I couldn't do anything after I have my disability. Uh, but uh, I, I thank God for like everything in my life. I came to realize that uh, even though with your disabilities, you can do anything in your life. Yeah, and we do advocate run. I joined the One Small Back Theater and we do advocating through theaters and we went around the highlands um, advocating for the rights of people living with disability. Uh, I went and worked, uh, went and worked at, uh, in Australia for the um, Thomas uh, International Foods. So, yeah, like right now, uh, Thomas International Foods, they are like my... Uh, major sponsor and I'm so grateful for what they've uh, done. They really support me and uh, yeah, I really appreciate everything. Especially the our post in uh, Stowell, Shane, uh, Mr. Shane and uh, Mr. Gavin, they're the one who really pushed me and even the team Vanuatu in Stowell, um, they really pushed me to um, help me and even all the staffs from uh, Thomas International Foods in Stowell, they really helped me and they support me and I really appreciate like they really helped me to uh, uh, with my sport, they really helped me and they really encouraged me um, to keep continue because uh, like uh, sometimes I want to um, give up like I went through many challenges so I want to give up but they really encouraged me and um, they really support me so yeah. I'm just so happy and I, I appreciate everything. And I understand as well, Ali, that the, the stall community has been very supportive of you. Yes. Uh, they're really, yeah, yeah. They really, really support me. The Stowell community, uh, even the council from Stowell, they really support me. They are the ones who uh, helped me to get my artificial leg as well. And uh, I'm just so happy to be around the community, uh, community, yeah, community that, they really uh, support and um, encourage me and they're so friendly and I'm just uh, like being in Stowell I just feel like I'm at home like uh, in Vanuatu um, even though I'm away from my son and my families but uh, being there in Stowell I feel like uh, I'm just at home. And I'm sure Ali you probably haven't had the chance to speak to them yet but I'm sure all of your your co-workers and your friends, your, your Pacific Island friends in Stall uh, will be extremely proud of you. Yes, uh, they've already texted me and uh, yeah, they've already sending uh, greetings messages congratulating me and um, yeah, I'm looking forward to go back and meet them again. And uh, I'm just uh, thankful for everyone. Like, um, to be honest, um, without everyone, like starting from day one, like uh, being like first time I didn't even accept my disability, like after getting my um, going through my um, accident and uh, having my disability, I didn't really accept uh, being a person with disability. But uh, uh, once more back, the disability, they approached me and helped me to realize that, uh, yeah, like I've said, that even though with your disability, you can achieve your dreams and do something good in your life, like uh, what that says. Uh, do not limit your challenge, but you have to challenge your limits. So uh, I'm just happy to um, uh, being around uh, wonderful persons in my life that they really support me, uh, even though I've been through a lot of challenges, but they're always been there for me. So I'm just grateful for that. 
And I think before your event, you had some extra motivation because you had a, a video message come through from your son. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, like of all the everything in my life, and one of the most things that really keep me going is my son. I'm just so happy to have him in my life. And uh, he's really like my big motivator. So that's his wish. So like uh, I didn't even leave him a message yet, but yesterday I call, um, I call everyone back at home and he was jumping and running <laughs> to and fro. He was so excited. And um, I just tell him that uh, your wish is granted. <laughs> yeah, so I'm just so happy having him around. And uh, I'm just having, uh, I'm just so happy that I have him in my life. That was champion para-athlete Vanuatan Eli, Ali Enoch, who lives in Stall, and what an inspiring character she is. And I think a three-word text on the text line sums it up. This texter simply says, you go, girl. Time for markets now, starting today at Wodonga Cattle with Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. It was more of the same here at Wodonga in a bigger yarding of 2,650. Prices jumped 20 to 40 cents and they were common. With export cattle and vealers leading the way, heavy bullocks and steers sold from 244 to 292 with the heavy feeder steers hitting $3. Medium weight feeder steers jumped 20 cents to 55 to three dollars ten. Likewise, feeder heifers they were twenty to thirty cents dearer, two twenty four to two eighty six. Trade steers and heifers were boosted by a strong feedlot competition, which resulted in a jump of thirty cents. Steers and heifers to the trade two thirty to two eighty. Fields sold thirty cents dearer, two forty to three nineteen. Cows lifted twenty cents. Heavy cows two thirty six to two fifty five. The middle run two ten to two thirty. I'm Leanne Dux for MLA. Thanks, Leanne. Shep Cattle now with Nicole Varley. Well, the numbers jumped as some confidence resumed in the cattle market this week. There were 1,360 exports and 585 trade cattle. Within the exports, 515 were cows. Additional buyers were at the rails with fueled competition coming from the north. The slowed cattle movements from the heavy rain event experienced last week has left some northern operators short of stock. The beef cows lifted 21 to 26 cents, grown steers and bullocks. They gained 15 to 18 cents a kilo, and the trade cattle also saw gains of 20 to 30 cents. Heavy veal is made from 243 to 312 cents. The yearling steers, 220 to 278 cents, with the feeder steer portion lifting by 20 cents. Yearling heifers, 225 to 269 cents, averaging around 250. They were 20 to 30 cents dearer. Frisian steers, heavy Frisian steers, 188 to 226, averaging around 228. They also met a jump. 400 to 500 kilo grown steers, 234 to 275 to 600 kilo steers, made to 260. 600 kilo plus bullocks, we had a fair few of those around, 235 to 262 cents, averaging around 250. This is Nicole Barley from Shepparton. Thanks, Nicole. Pretty good sale there. And let's see if Ballarat followed the trend of Bendigo and Hamilton yesterday in being pretty positive on the lamb job with uh, Chiona Lamb. Good afternoon. Lamb supply eased to 35,000 drawn for. Quality remained similar to a week ago with a range from plain to very good. Light store and processing lamb sold 8 to 14 dearer with processors mostly outbidding the store buyers. Medium trade sold 10 to 18 dearer. Heavy trade and heavy export weight lands gaining the most interest with bidding competition becoming electric at times. 
Heavy trade sold to 20 dearer and heavy export lambs made to a top of $219 a head to be $20 to $30 a head stronger. Lambs back to the paddock made $44 to $101 a head. Light lambs to the trade to suit NK orders sold $54 to $105. Trade lambs 18 to 22 sold $96 to $144. 22 to 26 kilo lambs made $124 to $191 a head with a range of $560 to $660 cents a kilo with sales reaching $750 cents a kilo carcass weight. Export lambs over 26 kilo sold $164 to $219 a head averaging $630 to $660 cents a kilo. With the lamb sales still in progress and 13,500 sheep to be sold, this is Shiona Lamb at Ballarat for MLA. Thanks for that, Shiona. Great result. That is just about it for today's Country Hour. Goes quickly, doesn't it? News time now. It's one o'clock.